Imagine yourself, if you can, uh, walking down the Boise Greenbelt uh, on a balmy summer evening, minding your own business, when suddenly you're mugged by an angel. Uh, not one of those wimpy, cherubic, huggies angels, but uh, a real, uh, honest-to-goodness, authentic, sure enough, majestic, flaming seraph. Um, what would you do? I suspect you would do what I would do and what everyone else in history has done who's ever seen an angel. You would fall flat on your face. You would give in. Suppose the angel said to you, you are one of the chosen. In fact, out of all of the human race, I've chosen you to say something to this confused, mixed-up world that, uh, that we live in. I have sent prophets for hundreds of years, and nobody has it exactly right. I sent Moses and Samuel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and Jesus. And uh, you still, you've got it all wrong. Even Bo doesn't know diddly. And so I have chosen you. You're my last word to the world. What would you do? Well, I suggest before you do anything, you read the passage that we've assigned ourselves this morning. Paul says, Paul, there I go again. I did that through the whole nine o'clock service. I kept referring to the author as Paul. Paul did not write this book. Whoever wrote it says, chapter two, verse one. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. And I want you to underscore in your mind, if not in your Bible, the, the verb heard and the tense of that verb. It is past tense. That is very important. He is referring to the revelation through Jesus. Remember in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told that in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets. at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. So uh, the writer is referring to the final, ultimate revelation of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. So he implores us to pay attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift by. Orig- uh, that was the original intent of the word. It's not a picture of drifting away from something. It's the idea of being in a canoe on a, on a river. Uh, a waterfall is up ahead. There is one final landfall. There's one opportunity to get yourself out of danger. If you drift by this, this promontory, this piece of land, the, your, your only expectation is destruction. We must pay attention, therefore, to what we have heard so we do not drift by. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, it was a sure thing. And every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, its recompense. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that is, the apostles, God also testifying to it by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed 
according to his will. It's a very small passage of scripture, but it is absolutely loaded with, with truth. Now, you understand what Paul is doing. He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. I did it again. I can't believe it. Well, you know what I mean, anyway. He's, the author is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's saying if, if the word that came through angels is significant, if it is good, then the word that came through Jesus is better. If the word that came through angels is important, how much more important is the word that came through a son? Now, what does he mean, the word that came through angels? Well, it was a long-standing, there was a long-standing belief in the Jewish community rooted in Scripture that, uh, that the, the law on Mount Sinai was mediated through angels. There's a reference in Deuteronomy uh, 33 in Moses' blessing of the tribes to the fact that when when God appeared on Mount Sinai, he appeared with holy angels, with the hosts of heaven around him. And that revelation, the ten words, the ten commandments, and the amplification of the ten commandments that we have in the first five books of the Old Testament, was mediated to God's people through angels. Uh, Stephen, in his defense before he was stoned, makes reference to the same, uh, same notion. Paul does so in Galatians. The author here refers to the fact that the law was mediated through angels. That was a, a significant word. But how much more important is the word that came through the Son? He's not saying that there was anything wrong with the law. It's just that the law was incomplete. God had more yet to say. And when the time came to say it, he said it through his Son. How much more important he, it is, he says, to listen to that word that came through the Son. And then he gives us what is the biblical theory of knowledge. My youngest son, Josh, has taken a philosophy class, his first philosophy class. And he, he has all these words now that he's learning that he, he doesn't know the meaning of. I don't know the meaning of half of them. Uh, we were sitting in our family room the other day. He said, Dad, what's epistemology? And so I, you know, I dredged around the back of my mind trying to remember what epistemology was and Finally, it came to me, it has something to do with knowledge, theory of knowledge. It's how we know what we know. And that's what Paul is concerned with. I did it again. This is what the author is concerned with here. <laughs> David said it must be an angel. That's what the author is concerned with here in this, in this section. How we came to know what we know of God's word. Now notice how he describes the process. He says, this salvation, this gospel, was first announced by the Lord. Our Lord came and through his words and through his deeds, he made the, known, made the Father known to us. God, who spoke through the prophets in various ways in the past, has in these last days spoken unto us in the Son. He spoke verbally through the Son's messages. He spoke non-verbally through the Son's uh, actions. So the Father first announced salvation through the Lord. Then it was confirmed to us. This is the generation to which the author belongs, the sub-apostolic generation, the generation, the third generation down from our Lord. Salvation was announced by the Lord, confirmed to us by those who heard him. That's the apostles. God also testified to it. He gave it his seal of approval through signs, wonders, and various miracles. That's the explanation for the ability of the apostles to work miracles. These were signs. They were authenticating signs to establish their credentials 
as prophets. Furthermore, uh, God testified to the veracity of their witness by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. I think what the author is referring to is the ability of the apostles to lay hands on these early Christians and confer gifts. In 2 Timothy, the apostle Paul refers to the fact that Timothy was, was given gifts by the laying on of my hands. That's the way he puts it. Stir up that gift that was given you by the laying on of my hands. The apostles, and apparently only the apostles, had the capacity to lay hands on people and to confer spiritual gifts. And this was a way of authenticating their their ministry. So you heard a man claim to be an apostle and you listened to him for a while and if his message was true to the Old Testament... And if he was able to work miracles, if he had these authenticating signs, then he was accepted as, as an apostle. And Paul's, and the writer says, this is how the word came to us. It was announced by the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard him, that is, by the other uh, apostles. And there are a number of places in the New Testament where this theory of knowledge is spelled out in more detail. When you turn... Back to 1 Corinthians 2 with me. 1 Corinthians 2. We referred to this passage several weeks ago, and some of you are familiar with it. But this is another place in the New Testament where this this, this theory of knowledge is spelled out for us. Paul's concern when writing to the church in Corinth was their preoccupation with wisdom and power. They felt that wisdom and power came from men, from the writings of men and women, from human beings. Paul says there is wisdom, we do have power, but it comes from another source. Verse 6, we speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. One of the characteristics of human wisdom is very faddish, it's transient, uh, very quickly changes. We're, we're, we're very often modifying our ideas and correcting ourselves. Uh, no, we speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. This is a wisdom designed to make us great and glorious. That's what God wants for all of us. He wants us to become great. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's some indication of what the wisdom of this world will do for us. The wisest men who ever lived put to death the Lord of glory. That's where human, that's the folly of human wisdom. However, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him, but God has revealed it to us by his spirit. What we cannot learn through the scientific uh, through scientific methodology. What we cannot learn through reason, God has revealed to those who love him. Well, how does that work? Paul tells us. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men know the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. And in a nutshell, you have an explanation of how 
The thoughts that are in God's mind get into our mind. God has thoughts. How would we know them if he didn't tell us? I don't know what you're thinking. You don't know what I'm thinking unless I express myself. God expressed himself to the apostles. The Spirit of God took the thoughts of God and implanted them in the minds of the apostles. Then the Spirit of God inspired the words, translated those thoughts into words. He scanned through the vocabulary of the apostles. He selected words out of their own vocabulary. And we're not talking about typewriters, some kind of mechanical theory of inspiration. God worked through the personality uh, of the apostle to choose certain words in which to express the thoughts he wanted to get across to us. So the thoughts came out of the mind of God into the apostle's mind. Those thoughts were changed into words or translated into words. And then when the apostles spoke or when they wrote, the Spirit inspired the very words that are on the page. So that Paul can say at the very end of chapter 2, we have the mind of Christ. Now, quite an audacious statement unless you understand what he's talking about. The Spirit of God takes the things that are in the mind of Christ, translates them into words on the page. And when we read the Bible, what we have are the thoughts of Christ. We think his thoughts after him. We have his mind. That's how truth came from God to us. Let me show you another passage. Turn back to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel, chapter 14, verse 25. These words were spoken in the upper room. They were spoken only to the apostles. No one else was there. John fourteen twenty five. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. This is a promise given to the apostles. I do not believe that this promise is given to the church except only indirectly. We have the apostolic word today, so in a very real sense, the spirit of Jesus teaches us through the apostles. But this word was originally given to the apostles. Have you ever thought about uh, the uncanny memory of the apostles, their ability to recall things that Jesus said and to recall them precisely? They were taking shorthand notes. The Spirit of God reminded them of the things that Jesus said. That's why they could re- recall with such precision what he taught. That's an answer to this promise. Now turn on a few pages to uh, chapter 16, verse 13. Or let's begin reading at verse 12. I have much to say to you more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. This is a promise that the spirit would teach the apostles what was to come so they could write prediction, prophecy. This is uh, John's warrant for writing the book of Revelation. This is Paul's warrant for writing the things that we studied recently in 1 Thessalonians 4, the things yet to come. This was what authenticated their ministry as, as prophets as well as apostles because they were able to predict the future with 100% accuracy. These words were addressed to the apostles. You understand what scripture is saying? God, the thoughts of God are the thoughts of Christ. When he expressed himself, he expressed himself to the apostles. The apostles remembered what he said. The spirit of God led them to write precisely what he said, nothing more and nothing less. And therefore, we have the mind of Christ. So we go back. We go back. 
you see. We go back to what we have heard, just like this uh, second or third generation Christian who wrote the book of Hebrews. Now, one other book, a little book of Second John, which is uh, real close to the end of the of the Bible. If you're working backwards, it's Revelation, Jude, Third John, and then Second John. It's a wonderful little book. It hardly ever gets taught on. Must have occupied just one page of a sheet of papyrus. And it's addressed uh, apparently to a woman. Some, some say a church, and that's a possibility. Uh, she is described here as the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in the truth. The theme of John is walking, uh, this epistle is walking in love. And the only way to walk in love is to walk in obedience to the truth because we don't have the foggiest idea what it means to love people unless we're told. And so we have to walk according to the truth in order to be loving. And that's the emphasis that he makes. And then in verse 7, he says, Many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is come in the flesh have gone out into the world. Most of the uh, translations say uh, is coming. And they take it to refer to the second coming. Uh, I don't. I think what John is referring to here is his first coming. The deceivers are always denying that Jesus has come. That's the mark of every cult that I'm familiar with. That's the mark of every false teacher. They are constantly telling us that Jesus comes in various manifestations. John says, no, he came once. This is what we call the Incarnation. And if we deny the fact that Jesus is come, has come in the flesh, then we have missed the message. He came once in history. Our Christian faith is rooted in history. It's not rooted in dogma and doctrine. It's rooted in the fact that God made himself manifest in Christ at one point in history. And if we deny that, we have fallen into the spirit of of Antichrist, as uh, John goes on to say, any such person is the deceiver. And the Antichrist, so there you have it. If anyone comes to your front door and knocks and says, I have another message, um, the message that Jesus came to proclaim was a little bit uh, incomplete. I have something more to tell you. Don't believe them. That's what John is saying. Because he goes on to say, if someone shows up on your doorstep at your house and bears this message, don't bid them grace. In other words, don't accept what they have to say. Don't believe them. Don't be in awe of them. Don't be frightened by them. Don't accept what they have to say. Because he says that's a a deceiver. That's the spirit of Antichrist. Watch out that you do not lose what you have worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. Now listen to this, verse 9. Anyone who runs ahead and does not continue in the teaching of Christ, that is, in those things that Christ taught, does not have God. Whoever continues in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Do you understand what he's saying? Christianity is not progressive. These deceivers were, were, they were coming and saying, you know, we, we've got some new truth. You know, we're on the vanguard. We're avant-garde. We, we've got some new thing. We're really with it. And uh, you listen to us. This is an update. And all the old stuff that you heard before. And John says, no, no, no. Don't go on. Go back. 
because our faith is not uh, progressive. Oh, we're learning all the time. You know, the, the scriptures are a bottomless pit. You'll never plumb the depths. So an early Christian said, the Bible is a river in which lambs may wade and elephants must swim. I mean, there are depths there that you and I will never plumb. We'll never get to the bottom of this truth. Our knowledge of God is always progressive in the sense that we're learning and we're growing in grace and understanding of who he is. But the revelation is not progressive. There is no new truth. We go back. We go back to what we have heard. Do you understand that? So I don't, you know, I don't care who shows up on your doorstep. It could be a, a shimmering, shining angel that floats six inches off the ground. You may be overpowered and overwhelmed by his presence or her presence. I don't know what angels are. It. They're sexless, I suppose. But whatever it is, if they come and tell you that there is some update on the gospel, you know, we've got the revised version of this thing that everybody had it wrong in the past. Nobody has understood it properly. Then you go back to this passage and you remember what you've heard from Jesus and the apostles. That's God's last word. He didn't have anything else to say to us right now. That doesn't mean we know it all, but we know everything God wants us to know right now about knowing him. And and John makes it very clear that if we don't go back to what we've heard from Jesus, that we don't have God. I don't care how religious we may appear to be. We don't know God. So we go back, not 100 years, not 200 years, not 500 years, but 2,000 years back to what we've heard. God, who has spoken to us through the apostles, through the prophets in various ways and at various times has in these last days, the period in between the first and the second coming of Christ, he has spoken to us in a son. That's it. That's the final and ultimate word. Now, uh, some will tell you, well, yeah, all right, okay, we've got to go back to the New Testament. But everybody knows that the New Testament writers garbled what Jesus said. I mean, after all, the New Testament was not written in the first century. Uh, it didn't come along until the second century, and the, the church misinterpreted everything that Jesus said. And his message was a, a message of... Uh, of love and kindness and, you know, and the church just mixed this thing up and what we've got now is a mixture of truth and error. Nobody knows what Jesus said and I say nonsense. Nonsense. We, we have better evidence that what we have in, in, in the New Testament are the actual words of Jesus than for any other document in antiquity. I don't care what you can name. If you ever took any uh, courses in classical literature when you were in, in college, you read, uh, for example, Caesar's Gallic Wars. You know, it starts out, all Gaul is divided in three parts. If you ever took Latin, you probably had to memorize that in Latin. That, that piece of literature was written about 58 B.C. The earliest manuscript we have of Caesar's Gallic Wars is 900 A.D. That's a thousand years. After that, that document was written. And no one questions the veracity of, of Caesar's Gallic Wars. I mean, they, you know, they just, that's what Caesar wrote. They just accept that. And you can go through all of the classical writers. I don't care who you name. Plato's uh, dialogues, you know, the whole thing. You know, we, we, there's a gap, like a thousand years between the writing. Well, what, Plato's more like uh, 1,400, 1,500 years. Gap between 
the actual writing in the first extant manuscript that, that we have. And nobody questions that, that what, what we have today in our hand is basically what these people said. Do you, do you know what kind of evidence we have for the New Testament? We have manuscripts going all the way back to the early 2nd century. We have entire uh, copies, uh, virtually entire copies of the New Testament that go back to the 3rd century, A.D. A number of years ago, they were uh, doing some excavating in Egypt, and they dug up this mummy. They were able to date this mummy precisely by the coins that they found in the... the, uh, Grave. They knew what coins were in circulation at that time. And they dated him during the reign of Hadrian. Hadrian died 117 A.D. They started stripping the mummy case off to see what they'd find underneath there. And they pulled off a big piece of papyrus and they saw some Greek writing on it and they looked at it. And you know what it was? It was, a, it was a section out of John 18. 117 A.D. We think that book was written at 100 A.D. That means within 20 years of the writing of the Gospel of John, a piece of papyrus had been discarded and was included in a mummy case. My goodness, what kind of evidence do we want for the veracity of, of the New Testament? You know, all that stuff is just swept aside. You hear people say, oh, no, we can't believe all this stuff because it's been garbled, it's been distorted. That's why I say nonsense. They don't know what they're talking about. What we have today is essentially the original uh, document. While it is true that we don't... Uh, we don't actually have, you know, the copy of of Romans that Paul wrote. We don't have we don't have the Gospel of John and John's handwriting. We don't have any of that. But we have very very early copies of these manuscripts, so we can go back to what he said. This is this is what we have heard. Now, this this whole issue is very complex, and I have written uh, a much more detailed explanation of the material I just went through, and that will be available in the racks uh, next uh, week if you'd like to get your hands on that. I guess what I want to say more than anything else this morning is that we have God's Word in our hands. We don't have any further Word. We don't need any further Word. We just go back to what what we've heard. And I, I don't care what angel shows up on your doorstep or on the green belt, no matter how good or glorious he may seem to be. If that angel tells you anything other than what our Lord Jesus told you, don't don't believe it. Don't believe it. It simply isn't. Uh, it isn't true. And then there are those uh, earthbound uh, messengers that you're going to encounter who speak to you through the media and on university classrooms. It will sound very good to you. But Paul said, if we or an angel from heaven, and this is one of the strongest words that Paul ever ever stated in, in any of his books. If we, or an angel from heaven, declare to you anything other than what you have received, let him be damned. That was, uh, that was the apostles' uh, verdict on these others who were writing and saying that they were, they were better witnesses than Jesus. Uh, as R.A. Torrey said, the truly wise man is he who believes the New Testament against the opinions of any man. If the New Testament says one thing and any body of men says another, he will decide. This book is the word of him that, that cannot lie.
So what I would suggest to you and to myself is an apprenticeship of uh, learning from Jesus. <laughs> uh, Johns Hopkins said that uh, the best educational situation was a teacher sitting on one end of a log and a student sitting on the other. And when I sit down to read the Word, I like to think of myself as sitting on one end of the log and Jesus sitting on the other. And when I read this Word, this is our Lord speaking to us. This is God's last Word to us. He doesn't have anything else to say. Now, I want to, there's one thing more I want to say about this passage before we leave it. This this section belongs in one of the so-called warning texts in the book of Hebrews. There are five of these. I don't know if you still have your outline. It's not in the bulletin this morning, but if you brought it along, bring it out and look at it. There are five warning uh, texts. Here, the author warns against drifting by. And, and as I said before, the picture is that of a river. At least this is what comes to my mind. This is the metaphor. There's a river and a waterfall is ahead and you're in a canoe without a paddle, literally. And you're, 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 you're being uh, 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 carried toward this uh, precipice. Your, your life is in mortal danger. And there is one last landfall. And that landfall is the gospel. You can picture Jesus standing at the end of that that little peninsula with a rope ready to rescue you. And the result is of ignoring it or drifting by it or refusing to get a, to take a hand is destruction. It's certain destruction. You see how he puts it? Um, if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we're careless about this, this latter word from God? Now, this is the first of these five warning sections. The second one is in chapter 3, uh, from 17 through 416. And there the warning is against preventing our hearts from getting hard, hearing the gospel over and over and over again, refusing to submit to it. There's always a hardening process, a desensitizing of our conscience that comes as a result of ignoring the truth. And that's what he warns against in that uh, second section. Uh, the third is that uh, notorious uh, passage in chapter 6, actually it begins in 511, runs on into chapter 6, about falling away. This is not uh, drifting away like uh, Peter did. It's not denying Christ. It is rather apostatizing like Judas. And we're not talking about drifting off into, into, into sins. It's talking about the one fundamental mortal sin of denying the gospel of of Christ. That's in chapter 6. In chapter 10, the uh, fourth warning section, uh, he talks about trampling the Son of God underfoot and profaning the blood of the covenant. In other words, turning your back on the cross and the atonement that Christ made. And then finally in chapter 12, defying uh, Christ. There are two men that we need to be thinking about. There is Peter's denial and there is Judas's betrayal. We're talking about the latter, his betrayal of Jesus. Jesus described him from the very beginning as the son of perdition, the son bound, the person who was bound for uh, destruction. Now, it, you'll notice in this text, he contrasts 
the message that came through angels and the message that came through Christ. And he says, one message came through, through angels, and if you ignore that, there is certain destruction. And I say, now wait a minute, in the Old Testament... There was provision made for sins. If you disobeyed the covenant, you could offer a sacrifice and you would be forgiven. What does he mean? There's no opportunity uh, to salvage uh, yourself in that kind of situation. Well, I don't think that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, again, simple sins. It could be atoned for. He's talking about apostasy. Turn back to Numbers 15. I think this is what he had in mind. Don't, don't get restless. We're going to be done by 12 here. I'm talking real fast. There's a contrast here between unintentional sin and defiant sin. Unintentional sin is not the kind of sin that we slip into, you know, sort of drift into indifference. We, uh, you know, we, we just aren't thinking and we sin. It's, it's, it's defined. Unintentional sin is defined for us in, Deuter- in Leviticus 6 as, as sins of human weakness like Lying, theft, perjury, murder, which can be deliberate sins. There, there is a long-standing uh, notion that there are witting and unwitting sins, and and unwitting sins can be atoned for, and witting sins uh, uh, cannot be atoned for. So the idea, if you deliberately sin, there's no no sacrifice you can offer. But that's not what he's talking about here, because if you take a life, if you deliberately take a life, there was a sacrifice. If you lied, there was a sacrifice. If you were guilty of perjury or false witness, there was a sacrifice. But there was one sin for which there was no sacrifice. It was mortal sin. It was the unforgivable sin. And it's described in verse 30. The one who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord. And that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised. He's curled his lip at the Lord's word and broken his covenant, that person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on it. Why? Because he isn't a member of the people of God. That's why. The word that's translated defiant here in Hebrew means with a high hand. This is treason. This isn't the kind of sin that we all step into from time to time. This is blatant resistance. It's denial of the grace of God. It's shaking our fist in God's face. And saying, we know full well the penalty for sin, but we do not want your forgiveness. And there is no sacrifice for that sin. Just as John says in the New Testament, there is a sin unto death. I don't say you should pray for that. What is that sin? Well, it's the sin of defying Jesus and turning your back on the sacrifice, spurning the covenant, uh, refusing to to submit to the Lordship of Christ, walking away from the grace that... Uh, that he gives us. Now I want to say this, and I want to say this loud and clear, and I'm going to say this every Sunday from now on, because people get terribly confused when they read the book of Hebrews. I want to tell you this. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you cannot apostatize. You see, the flip side of Jesus' statement, I will not leave you or forsake you, is that he won't let you alone. If you belong to him, he will hassle you, he will harangue you, he will prod you, he will pull you, he will woo you, he will break you down. He will sooner or later get your attention and draw you back to himself. Now, Christians can sin, there's no question about that. We're all living memorials to that fact. But we cannot, if we are truly regenerated, we cannot turn our back on God and walk away. 
the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, as I understand it, is that the truly regenerated will endure to the end. But there are some who are just going along for the ride. They're playing church, and they may be playing at church very thoroughly, playing church very thoroughly. They may be teaching Sunday school classes. They may be on committees. They may be sharing their faith with people. They may look very good on the outside like Judas. Do you understand that none of the apostles knew whom Jesus was speaking about when he said, one of you is a devil? They didn't know. But from the very beginning, Judas' heart was never uh, given over to Christ. He had his own agenda. He's like the uh, soil that Jesus describes in Matthew 13. There was a hard layer of resistance down into the soil. And though the seed sprang up and looked good, it had no root in itself. And eventually it withered and died. And Judas just manifested himself for what he, for what he was. That's why John says in his book, They went out from us because they never were a part of us. I just want to say it again. If you are truly regenerated, you will endure to the end. doesn't mean you won't sin. doesn't mean you won't fail. But the Lord will not leave you alone until he draws you back to himself. And if you can turn your back on God and walk away from him and have nothing more to do with him, then you have to understand that you've never been regenerated. Your heart has never been changed. And sad to say in any group this size, there are some people like that who are just going along for the ride. I can't tell you who you are. I only know my own heart. And I would ask you to do what Paul asked us to do, asked the Corinthians to, to do in his second letter to them. He says, test yourself. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. What's the test? Obedience to apostolic authority. Obedience to the authority of Christ. It means that down deep inside, at the very core of our being, though we may be struggling... To give in to his lordship, we're willing to serve him or we are willing to be made willing to serve him. But if you don't have that willingness, then I can give you no assurance that you belong to him. And so I would just, uh, I would just leave with you this, uh, this warning note is, it's very clear what the writer is doing. This, these verses, these four verses are really the application to chapter one. Therefore, therefore, for this reason, because of the superiority of the Son, because of the greatness of God made manifest in Jesus, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we don't drift by it. I don't have time, but I was going to take you to Psalm 1. I would encourage you to read through that psalm on your own. This this uh, afternoon's a wonderful psalm. It's the preface to the entire Psalter. Tells us what we can expect out of the Psalter. The purpose of the Psalter is to teach us the way of the righteous. And you know how the psalm begins. Blessed, happy is the person who does not walk in the, in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, those that would thumb their nose at, at God. But their delight is in the law of the Lord. They love the word. See? They want to sit at Jesus' feet and listen to him. They're like, they're like Jeremiah, who said, Your words were found, and I did eat them, and they were the joy and rejoicing of my heart. They delight in the word. That's the mark of a changed heart. You see, Not that we don't struggle. Not that we don't get mad at God for the things he asks us to do. But down deep inside, there is a recognition that this is our Lord's loving, 
gracious words to us. Their delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by rivers of water that bring forth their fruit in their season. Their leaf also shall not wither, and whatever they do, they prosper. Not so the ungodly. Not so the ungodly. He's not talking about people that are overtly, obviously wicked, but those who are not delighting in the law, in the word of God. Not so the the ungodly. He says they're like the chaff which the wind drives away. They won't stand in the judgment. They won't have a leg to stand on, the psalmist says. And his final word is, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. The way of the righteous is not the way of those that are perfect, but the way of those that delight in the word of God. But the way of the ungodly will perish. It's interesting the way he puts it. He doesn't isn't saying there that the ungodly will perish. Their way perishes. It pinches out. Life becomes more and more limiting, more restricting, more frustrating, more inhibiting. But uh, those that know the way of righteousness, who are submissive to to Jesus' words, who sit and listen to His teaching, and who who love it, and who, as Jeremiah puts it, they eat it up. They, they delight in it. Those are the ones that God knows and loves. And there's that immense sense of satisfaction and well-being that, that comes from knowing that, that we're in his hands. As, as Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they will never, ever, under any circumstances whatever, perish. Uh, A double negative in English is bad English, but it's good Greek, and that's exactly what what our Lord said. They will not never perish. Let's pray. Lord, this is strong medicine. These are hard words, and yet, uh, where else will we go? You're the only one who has the words of eternal life. We know it works. We know that this word is like the hammer that breaks the rock. It wears down our resistance and draws us to repentance and gives us the strength to change. We have not only the written word, but the living word that accompanies it. We want to abide in it. We want to abide in you. We want to remain with you and and be taught by your spirit. And Lord, if there, if there is resistance in our hearts, we want you to break up that resistance. We want to be responsive, faithful followers. Thank you that you know us. Thank you that you've charted a path for us. Thank you that we can follow you into eternal life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.